Well, would you please open your Bibles to Luke 2? I want to read Luke 2, verses 36 through 38, and then we'll pray again together, asking for God's help this morning. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Join me in praying for God's help. Father, as we continue to make our way through the Christmas story, it is with joy, it is with awe, it is with expectation and hope. We also confess that there are mysteries about this story, things that we do not fully understand, some of which we could not grasp simply because we live 2,000 years beyond their occurrence. And yet, these things are written for our encouragement, for our understanding, as Luke wrote in those opening words of his gospel, that we may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught and are being taught. I ask, Father, that your spirit would attend the preaching of the word today, that our hearts might see and know, believe, and respond These are words designed not simply to record history accurately, but they are words designed to give us life. So give us that life. Some, for the very first time, need to have their hearts illuminated today, first to their sin and their need of a Savior like Jesus. They need to know the power of His life and death and resurrection. They need to know in order that they might be saved eternally. Some need to be brought back to these powerful realities, these life-shaping, life-centering, life-ordering truths. And I ask that as your word is preached and read, that we might understand it and submit our hearts to it and be counted among those faithful ones who through the centuries have set their hope fully in the Lord and followed faithfully and served obediently. So we are praying that you would change us, make us to be the people you created us and redeemed us to be. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Anna is the second of three women we want to look at closely as closely as possible. Just three verses here in this text. And I'll confess that even as I approached it at the beginning of the week, I thought, you know, there, it'd be nice if there were at least six verses or maybe even a full chapter or an entire book devoted to this godly woman. But, you know, there really is enough here for us to sink the, the, the teeth of our souls into, as it were, and find some, some truth that will nourish us and challenge us and, and grow us. There's much in the life of Anna that is significant 
And, and it's not that we have to make it up, but we just understand a few things about the context in which she was living, the immediate chapter in which her name appears, and even the particular ministry that the Lord had set before and that she fulfilled. I want to take you all the way back to the opening verses of Luke's gospel, though, because this is important to understanding what role someone like Anna plays even in Luke's gospel. So look at the first four verses, please. But as Luke begins this gospel, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, listen to this, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus." And Theophilus must have been a close friend, an associate, someone that Luke wanted uh, to to possess this truth, this account. And then look at verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And that notion that we could be absolutely certain about the, the facts and the story, the unfolding of these events with a view that our lives would be changed by it is something that many people in our culture would challenge today. You probably know people, maybe even work alongside them, live that, maybe your own family members who say, you know, I, I, you know, that's fine for you, but I just don't think we can be that certain. Well, were you certain when you walked out of your front door today that the, that the concrete or pavers underneath your feet would support you? I mean, there are, just, there are some things in life you can be certain about. I'm certain that this ground on which I stand is not going to give way at this particular moment. I'm not certain that my car will turn over when the, you know, I put the key in the position. Some of you would say that. So there, so there are uncertainties in life, but there are also things that we are certain about. Not one of us went to bed last night saying, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. It did, as it always has. There are some certainties in life. And you know, this gospel story is also given to us in order that we may be certain these things really happened, really came to pass. But it's more than just history that's accurate. There's actually life-changing truth here. Now, let me kind of set the stage for Anna. And, and you picked up on a few things already that are probably either a little bit of a curiosity or some of you are familiar with her story. You're, you're thinking back over the few facts that are given to us. But just try to put yourself in Anna's place for a little while this morning. We know that she was elderly, and I'm sure that those years that she had lived and many of them had endured as a widow probably seemed as if they would never come to an end. And even if they did come to an end or some kind of fulfillment, I mean, to what point? What was the point of her life? As we read, decades earlier, Anna had lost her husband, and probably unexpectedly, because no one gets married, and she was probably a teenager when she was married, and according to the text, married for seven years, and then her husband dies. Nobody expects to be married to someone in your youth, and then within seven years, marriage is ended by a death. And it's also obvious from the way the text reads that she is left alone. No no child had come to them. And even if you understand some of Israel's practices and some of the Old Testament stories like Ruth, among others, there would have been an expectation that a brother-in-law 
would step forward as a, a kinsman redeemer, perhaps, or at least to fulfill the role, and to raise up a child that would extend his brother's bloodline. I know that's a different practice for us, but, but apparently Anna had no option like that, or there was no brother-in-law who was willing to be righteous and just in that particular way. So here she is, a woman who was widowed in her youth and is now old. I wonder if it must have been hard for those who knew her to understand the dedication of her life. Her service in the temple could be summarized in two words from this text, prayer and fasting. And for many, I suspect, it seemed rather pointless, particularly in that day and age, in light of the Roman occupation, the oppressive regime that was upon them, even the way the, the worship in Israel was moving in that particular point. Prayer and fasting? Really? Can't you find something better to do with your life? You know, even the Jewish leaders of her day were corrupted in faith and practice. The Pharisees were coming into greater and greater power. They had turned the, the temple worship and the sacrificial system into a money-making machine. And their legalism and self-righteousness was every bit as oppressive in its own right as that of the Roman rule. The Sadducees, another powerful group, were continuing to spread their own teaching, which really was a kind of theological liberalism. They denied the supernatural, in particular that there was a resurrection, a future life for people to prepare for and plan for. And then you have the, uh, the, the, the zealots, whether they were officially organized at this point or not, but those are the, the, the Jewish nationalists who were born out of the Maccabean rebellion and still felt at that particular point that the Old Testament scriptures justified their nationalistic fervor and their whole point was to kick out the Romans and repossess the land. One author writes that zealot opposition to Roman rule was rooted in zeal for the Torah and for God as the only king. And the zealots regarded themselves as agents of divine judgment and redemption, resolutely and fearlessly contending against idolatry, apostasy, and collaboration. And those zealots we're looking for Messiah to come and be their leader. So those are some of the major religious and political currents that are just rolling through Anna's day. And for all the years that she had been fasting and praying, in one sense, you could say, humanly speaking, it seemed like it was making no difference. You could even make a case that in the 84 years of her life, or as some commentators say, there's, you can actually make a case out of the scriptures that she may have been as old as 104 but in all those years of faithful service, you could make a case, humanly speaking, that it didn't make any difference. But God, through his gospel, is giving us a very different perspective, isn't he? And he not only has a different perspective on what is happening globally and culturally at that time, he also gives us a very different perspective on Anna's simple devotion. And it brings me to this point, too, of saying, what is God's perspective on my devotion and your devotion? Is God measuring that by your personal political influence in this day? Is God measuring that by your financial influence in the community of which you're a part, or, or, or maybe some type of social influence that you exert on the world around you? Or is he looking for a heart much like Anna's, that says, I love God and his word and serving him supremely. 
Now, as you look at Luke 1, you notice those words that this account is being given for us to have certainty concerning these things. And it's not that Luke is trying to write a better gospel than Matthew or Mark or John, but all four of these complement one another. And God wants you to be certain not just about the record of Jesus, but he wants you to be certain about the lordship of Jesus over your life today. Now, Anna is one of six witnesses that Luke brings forward, three pairs actually. And, and we looked at the first two last week. Now, we looked at Elizabeth primarily, but remember her husband Zachariah is paired with her. The second pair of witnesses would actually be Mary and Joseph, and we'll come to them uh, next week, but Mary in particular. And then the third pair, and, th- and they're not married, so don't connect them in that way, but now we have Simeon and Anna. In many ways, obscure people, people you would not expect to uh, be brought forward as authoritative witnesses, but these are some of the eyewitnesses that Luke will line up in the course of his gospel in order that you and I may have certainty concerning Christ. So let's look a little more closely at Anna's uh, life and her setting. Do you know her name means full of grace? The worship team just introduced what's probably a new Christmas carol for many of us, fullness of grace. Well, God is full of grace. And this was a common name for Jewish women. Uh, Another just variation of this same name would be Hannah. And many of you would know the story of Hannah from the Old Testament. She also was a woman in very unusual and difficult situations. But here is uh, a woman whose father is named here, Phanuel. It's interesting that her husband isn't named, but perhaps there were those who would have said, oh, Phanuel, I knew him, or I knew of him. Um, But Anna descended from Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, again, clearly one of the 12 tribes, but we don't think of Asher as a significant tribe, and it really wasn't. It would be one of the lesser tribes, but she is descended, no doubt, from some of the faithful remnant who returned from Babylon hundreds of years before, and the Bible tells us she's advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, a widow until she was 84. And as I noted just a few moments ago, you could find Bible commentaries and those authors and and scholars who would say, you know, we really could make a case that she might be as old as 104, depending on how we read the text. But the point is, she's old. She's got a lot of years of life and service behind her. And I want to speak to that ministry for just a moment, because whether it's 84 years of age or 104, the service is what the Lord points us to. Her ministry was really significant, and one of the first things that Luke is doing is to bring forward a witness of great spiritual authority. You say, well, what gives Anna spiritual authority? Well, it's this word prophetess. That's not commonly used, but when God refers to her as a prophetess, he is putting her in the category of some really significant personalities. Now, what is a prophetess? I really appreciated this one particular definition and explanation that I came across this week. It's a female friend of God, and I was struck by that initially, who lives in communion with God, to whom God reveals himself by a spirit, and who speaks truth on behalf of God. You see, Anna is in great company. If you were to go back to the Old Testament and begin to look at the women who are described as prophetesses, you would begin to encounter women like this. Miriam, who at the Exodus led a group of women. She, remember, is the sister of Aaron and Moses. 
and after the great defeat of Israel, she is or, or of Egypt, and the great rescue of Israel, she is the one who took a tambourine in her hand, according to Exodus 15, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea, and she leads this great worship celebration. Deborah is the second prophetess you encounter in the Old Testament. Judges 4 tells us that as a prophetess, she was judging Israel at that particular time. And then Judges 5 records the song that Deborah and Barak sang in praise to God for the victory that God had given to Israel. Huldah is the third prophetess. She is recorded in 2 Kings 22. Under the reign of Josiah, the young king of Judah, Hilkiah the priest had found the book of the law and as they began to read it, they were convicted of their sinfulness, of the violations of God's commandments and great fear settles into their hearts and they seek out this prophetess, Huldah, and they ask her to speak on behalf of God. What should we do? And she gives them a word from the Lord concerning repentance and God's mercy and, and she begins that prophetic moment with these words, thus says the Lord. And the fourth prophet is mentioned, and she is not named, she is simply described as Isaiah's wife, but she was a woman of great spiritual authority, and that, that's what God inserts her into. It's a significant group, and so she is a witness of great spiritual authority. You know, it's interesting to me, as you continue to read through the New Testament, you encounter others who, other women who prophesy. And I went back to 1 Corinthians 14 this week and looking at what Paul says about the gift of prophecy, and there are three words that Paul uses to describe the, that work of prophecy. And he says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, that those who prophesy build up the people to whom they are speaking. Number two, there is encouragement. And number three, there's consolation or comfort. And although the words of Anna are not recorded in its context, it follows right on the heels of Simeon's prophetic word, I think all three of those things would be true. Here is a woman who dwells in such friendship and personal communion with God that when she sees things being fulfilled for which she has prayed for through the years and she begins to open her mouth that people experience that building up and encouragement and consolation. So she's a woman of great spiritual authority. Secondly, she is also a woman of great piety, a witness of great piety. Look again at, at Luke 2. It tells us that she did not depart from the temple. Now, again, a little bit of historical study, you'd find out that temple worship in those days was fairly corrupted. It was not the type of thing that was bringing honor to God. You could begin just with the high priest of her day, the high priest who had been appointed uh, solely through political means and his relationship with Herod the Great, and it ultimately had to do with the fact that Herod the Great saw this particular man's daughter and said, I want her as a wife, and he eventually married her, and so that opened the door for a high priest named Simon, the son of Bothus, uh, to assume that position. And he served from about 23 BC right up until the time that Christ was born. Now imagine if you're Anna and you are living at the temple, serving there every day, fasting and praying, but you're surrounded by a religious system that at its core is 
corrupted biblically, and it is just a politically powerful extension of the Roman rule, you might want to be uh, rethinking where you are and what you're doing. At minimum, it'd be discouraging, wouldn't it? Some of you may have been in context before religiously where you really were seeking to follow God, but, but the, 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 the authority, the, the people who were in power around you, you could just tell, have a real relationship with God. It's, it's all about the internal politics of this organization, or it's, it's about something other than simple, unadulterated devotion to God. The great historian Josephus has recorded, and, and this is not scripture, but just to give you a little idea of that dynamic I, I describe very briefly, he tells of Simon, this high priest, and says that he was not only the son of Bothus, but he, uh, Bothus was a citizen of Alexandria, Egypt, a great priest, he notes, this man had a daughter who was esteemed the most beautiful woman of that time. And when the people of Jerusalem began to speak much in her commendation, it happened that Herod was much affected with what was said of her. And when he saw the damsel, he was smitten with her beauty. Yet did he entirely reject the thoughts of using his authority to abuse her as believing what was the truth that by so doing he should be stigmatized for violence and tyranny. So here's a man, political ruler, who just wants to make sure he, he maintains that good reputation and relationship with the Jewish people. So he decides what's best is to take this girl as his wife. And while Simon was of a dignity too inferior to be allied to him, but still too considerable to be despised, I mean, Herod's just a politician through and through. He governed his inclinations after the most prudent manner by augmenting the dignity of the family and making them more honorable. Josephus doesn't tell us how he did that probably gave them some kind of recognition publicly. And then he goes on to, in conferring that dignity on Simon of the high priesthood, uh, that opens the door for him to marry his daughter. You know what I'm struck by? This, so this man, Simon, as high priest, would have been the, the man who went into the Holy of Holies once a year on that great and high day of atonement. First of all, representing the people before God, offering the sacrifice as it was prescribed in the Old Testament, performing the necessary rituals, and then, and then receiving those tokens of God's acceptance and forgiveness and going out to you know, affirm with the people and confirm God's work of, of blessing and forgiveness over them. And there's no indication that this is a spiritual man. As a little sidebar, it shows you the mercy of God that he didn't actually strike these people dead who so abused the precious system of worship that he inaugurated, but because this man, scoundrel as he was, politically motivated as he was, was in God's eyes still the representative of the great high priest Jesus who was to come. And so God blessed the work and ministry of that high priest for Christ's sake. And by the way, some of you heard, as I did growing up, that they used to tie a rope around the ankles of the high priest, and if he ever dropped dead, they'd drag him out. You know that's not actually in the Bible. You can't find that in the Old Testament. That's legend that grew up. The reality is, if your high priest drops dead in the Holy of Holies, you've got greater issues to think about and take care of than how to get the body out. 
because your God-appointed representative who is the visible assurance that there is forgiveness for your sins, there is an atoning sacrifice that God accepts, he's just totally wrecked. And then, then your real problem is not how do we get the body, it's like how do I get forgiveness? That's another lesson. So here's Anna doing her best to live and serve in a context that is fully corrupted. But the Bible tells us that there she is at the temple, day after day, doesn't depart. As one author characterizes her, her long and single-minded devotion to God, like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon, here she is, a devout, righteous woman, a model for every believer. What sustains an individual like this in the, in the middle of great corruption? What, what allows her to say, I'm going there again today? I know Simon is a corrupted high priest. The only reason he has that position is because Herod the Great wanted his daughter for wife. It's not a high priest who would command respect it's not a system that would foster the sincere faith of people like her. What would move her to fast and pray day after day? I think it becomes clear this is a woman who's put her faith in the promises of God. Look at the text again, and here's the, the last little point I want you to set your heart on here for a few minutes. Her life has been characterized by this faithfulness, but verse 38 says, coming up at that very hour. What hour are we talking about? Well, the hour that Mary and Joseph and her child, Jesus, we know that the child was conceived of the Holy Spirit, so let me be very precise there. But as that young couple brings this baby to the temple to go through the, the procedures and, and ceremonies that were necessary to consecrate him, uh, and Simeon speaks this beautiful prophetic word and his heart is full of joy. It's that hour that we're talking about. So here she is at that strategic moment and you have a great sense as you read this that it's a God-directed arrival. But you know what? Every day of her life to this point has been God-directed. It's not like Anna has said, you know, I'm going to be in charge of six days of my week, but I'll let God be in charge of day number seven. And it's not like Anna has said, you know what, I'm going to be in charge of the first 40 years of my life, and then I'll give God my retirement years. No, if truth be told, God has directed every single one of her days up to this point. So from Anna's standpoint, there's nothing out of the ordinary on the, this day. But from God's perspective, this is the particular day that he fulfills all those prayers, all that fasting through the years. Coming at that very hour. How amazing is that? So here she is, directed by God to this very moment, but, but here's a second thought for you. It also becomes apparent, though her words are not specifically recorded, she just breaks out into more God-exalting praise. She begins to give thanks to God, the, the text says. And if you dig into this a little bit, it just means to profess publicly. It's actually what we are doing when we come into a place like this and we sing the hymns and the, the carols. It means to praise God, to celebrate. It could even be said of Anna that she is praising God in affirmation to what Simeon has just said. 
You could even take that little phrase and, and translate it in this way, God is my praise. Just saying openly, God is my praise. Last week for Elizabeth, the key thought there was God is my promise. He's the one I'm centering my life on. And there's a little parallel thought, I think, breaking out here through the life of Anna that he really is the praise. He's been the centerpiece of my praise all my life, all 84 or 104 years to this point. And he is on this day because of, of what he has done. And she begins to speak specifically of him, that is, of Christ, the one she has looked for and longed for. And notice the effect, the last phrase of that verse. She is speaking to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We don't know how many are included in that group. We don't know their names, what kind of relationship they had with Anna. But praise God, even in the midst of all that political and religious corruption and darkness, there were those who faithfully, daily, looked for God to fulfill his promise. That word redemption is strong, and it's actually what all of us who know Jesus and await his second appearing are praying for, because redemption speaks of, of an act of freeing or releasing or deliverance. Now, we know through passages like Ephesians 1 verse 7 that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So there's an aspect of our redemption that's already accomplished. But the fullness of that redemption has not yet come. That's, that's why we continue to groan in weeks like we've been living through recently. And I'm telling you, I said it last week in so many words, and I'm saying it again today. We share a lot more in common with the saints uh, of, that, uh, of that nativity context than we might realize. You who are just worn out and weary with the political nonsense and chaos and corruption, hey, join Anna's Club. You who are so weary with religion itself just becoming a machine where there is no vital personal relationship with God, but it just seems to be ritual and, 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 and the people who have control and power just seem to use it for their own advance or ad advantage. Anna gets it. But in the same way that those political and religious currents running through her day weren't the real story so don't let what's coming out of Washington or any other uh, religious power center make you think that that's the real story in our day. The real story in our day is that there is a God in heaven who has eternal purposes that are at work. He's moving them forward, and it might even be our generation that sees the fulfillment of the things yet unfulfilled. Suddenly, Anna's life of simple service of prayer and fasting takes on much greater significance, doesn't it? And it actually kind of reverses what you might have thought had you lived in her day really mattered. Roman rule seemed to be the dominating power of the day, but what is the great dominating power? It's God. The popular religious currents of the day might have carried you into Pharisaism or Sadduceeism or even, even the, the zealots but what's the real current you need to dive into and be a part of? God's work. We too are waiting for our redemption. What's Luke's big point then? 
Well, first of all, let's not, let's not miss this. Remember he said, I'm, I'm, I'm putting these things down that you'll have certainty. Let's be real clear on this. Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. I know for the vast majority of you say, okay, got it, you know, check that box a long time ago. But can we pause for a moment? I'm not, I'm not talking historically, although he is. See, for Anna, this is intensely personal. For Simeon, this is intensely personal. For Mary and Joseph, for Zachariah and Elizabeth, and by this I mean their hopes have been fastened to the promises of God, and suddenly they see the fulfillment of those things. They're, they're not just trying to check boxes going, okay, got it, you know, yes, Jesus is Messiah, or Messiah will come in their case. But they've so given themselves to God that this is intensely personal. And that's where I wonder if, if Jesus Christ is your personal redeemer. Is he your personal king? Is your life really being lived under his lordship, his shepherding care? He did not come to this earth in order to fulfill history. He came to redeem you and me and to enter into relationship. There's a second thought that strikes me. Jesus is worth serving for all the days of your life. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring Anna into the room right now and say, Anna, tell us about those long, dark, difficult years. You think she ever woke up in the morning and said, hmm, I don't really feel like fasting and praying today. I'm going to assume she did because she's made out of the same dirt you and I are made out of, right? But there she was day after day, by faith, receiving God's word as she knew it, understood it, had access to it, seeking to affirm it from her heart, submit herself to God's teaching, his commandments, his statutes, because she clearly is, is a godly moment, but how many days and months and years were there where she said, is this really going to happen? God, when are you going to send the Messiah? God, how long will you let this corrupt Roman king be in charge? Lord, when, when will we actually have a high priest who would represent you as he ought to represent you, who, who would be a man of spiritual integrity and holiness and righteousness. Thank you that you haven't killed this high priest, but when will you give us a high priest who has a heart for you? I don't know. It's speculation, but when you look at the context in which Anna was living and serving, don't get the idea that it was easy for her. It was no easier for her than it is for you or for me to get up every morning and say, God, I'm going to serve you today but he's worth it. And we're going to have our own moment where we stand in the very presence of God and we'll be overwhelmed in that moment with his glory and we'll be overwhelmed with the reality that everything he ever told us is true. And that pushes me to a third point that I think this is reasonable. It really does seem that the word of God was 
just the foundation on which Anna's life was built. Remember, the, the definition of a prophetess is a woman who is a friend of God, who is in such personal communion with Him that when she speaks, she is giving a message from God or revealing truth about Him that brings blessing and encouragement and consolation to those who are around her. And the Word of God is the most important stream of information or source of information you will ever have. So let me, let me try to make this real practical because probably most of you are like, yeah, okay, yep, that's a good point. Yep, I should, I should serve Jesus all my days. Okay, but let's get real practical. How much time in the past week did you catalog maybe with these information sources specifically or things like them? I'm not going to ask for, you know, an actual raise of hands or somebody say, well, you know, I did keep track. It was 17 hours this week. I spent a fair amount of time watching a couple of news outlets. I mean, this whole impeachment inquiry and process, I mean, it, it's, it's a significant moment in the history of our nation, isn't it? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be tuned into news sources and know what's going on in our world, but if you were to, to put those hours down and compare them to the hours that you spent here, what would be the ratio? For some of you, that book remained closed all week. And you know, if you're, if you're not reading, hearing the word of God, you're starving yourself. Now, there's a lot going on in our world that makes you feel like, you know, your soul is alive or it's active, but I'm telling you what God himself reveals to us, that this is the word of life. This is actually food for your soul. And when you take this into your soul, it does several things. One, do you know that it actually washes you? Ephesians talks about the washing of the water of the word. It cleans out your system. It's going to purge some of those sinful thoughts. It's even going to purge out some of the foolish thoughts, goofy thoughts. It's also going to feed your soul. Psalm 19 talks about the benefits of God's word and many other passages. And, and as this book is open and we are opening our hearts to it and our minds to it and we are listening to God as he speaks through it, there are transformative things that are taking place in us. That's how God designed it. You think about the nature of friendship. Friendship takes time, doesn't it? We spent Thanksgiving with some new friends. They're actually the, the families that our two daughters have been getting to know through school and other connections here in Utah. And one of their traditions is to go to, a number of these families go to Moab every Thanksgiving and they take their trailers and set them up in an RV park. And we didn't have a trailer, so we just got a hotel room nearby. But, but this, because this is our first time to meet many of them, you kind of go through those standard questions. You know, you just tell your history. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Where have you been? And, you know, it's, it's good, but I wouldn't say that deep friendship resulted from those three days we had. Friendship takes time. 
and you move from the surface level questions to heart level questions, and then you have experience with each other over time. And if you spend enough time with a person, you just kind of have a running dialogue. And you, you, you just never go back to those surface level questions because you've spent enough time. You know, for Anna to be a friend of God in, indicates that she had spent time in God's presence, time in his word. And if you are to be a friend of God, then you too must spend time in his word and you must know him as he is. If you are spending only a few minutes in the word of God each day compared to the amount of time you spend feeding your soul from news outlets or entertainment sources or social media, it it will be impossible for you to deepen that friendship with God to the place where you would have this kind of relationship. God wants his truth to be so real, so life-controlling, so pervasive in your soul that you really are each day at a place of saying, I I can't live without him. I can't live without his word. And I can't actually live one day without serving him. So it doesn't mean that you quit your job and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to move into the church and every day I'm going to fast and pray at Gospel Hope. Uh, can we talk before you do that? No, it, it, it may not change some of the bigger pieces, but it may change some of the significant pieces. You see, you get up tomorrow morning and you say, okay, today, got to go examine eyes like these guys over here. God, that's secondary to being your servant. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are students. That's God's work for you. It's a divine and sacred calling to either be at the lectern teaching or to be receiving, putting down those notes, taking those tests. Or some of you are going to be on the assembly line. Some of you are going to be doing quality control. Some of you are going to be taking sales trips this week. And some of you are doing the hard work uh, of being a a stay-at-home parent. You wish somebody would write you a paycheck, and they probably should, but nonetheless, it's all divine and it's all sacred, but even those specific tasks are secondary to knowing God, being his friend, following him, serving him with all that you are. See, our world thinks that what's coming off the headlines and what's being spoken and said through these news outlets is the really big deal, and I'm telling you, it's not what God is doing in individual hearts and lives and church families like ours and communities like the South Valley. Oh, this is a woman who I eagerly, eagerly anticipate meeting and learning more of her story. And rather than spending hour upon hour there, what if in the days to come, this picture was more characteristic of you. Bible open. Devoting yourself to prayer. Some days to fasting. Absorbing the word. Receiving it by faith. Growing in your knowledge of God and growing in your friendship with God to where your life and everything about it, your words, just the direction, even just that that atmosphere of your life would say, God is my praise. Aren't you glad for these women in the nativity? 
we learn a lot from them, and we eagerly anticipate how God might use us in similar ways. Let's bow for prayer. I know that for some of you, to just begin a regular discipline of opening the Word of God on a daily basis would be a huge first step, but if you will take it, God will bless it. And for some of you, that's going to look like even just five minutes of uninterrupted reading in the Word. Good, do it. Will you do it? Will you just commit yourself to the Lord and say, God, if you will help me, and I will need your help, but I want to cultivate this kind of friendship with you and be a person of the Word. So by your grace, I'm going to start a daily discipline of being in the Word. Some of you read God's Word, but you actually read it more like a Pharisee. You want to be expert in all the nuances, but you don't really submit yourself to it. You're not repenting of your self-righteousness and humbling yourself before Him and saying, how can I serve you, God? How can I serve others? And so for you, it's not a matter of a daily discipline. It's actually a matter of a real personal relationship with God. Or maybe you read it like a Sadducee. You're skeptical, trying to find fault and problem with it, saying that just doesn't even make sense. That's not even rational or logical. And so you pick and choose the things that are convenient for you, that give you some sense of a religious life, yet at the end of the day, you are, you are no more religious than the Sadducees who said there, there really is no life after death. You need to repent of that. Come humbly to God and say, I need you. I need your word. Some of you read the Bible like a zealot. You're more interested in finding proof texts for your American patriotism and nationalism than you are being a servant of Jesus. And every true follower of God is going to be a, a loyal, faithful, humble citizen of the nation they live in. But you know, being a flag-waving American and being a committed Christian are not the same thing. You need to stop looking at the Bible as proof text for your particular political position and persuasion and even party loyalty and say, oh Lord God, I'm a citizen of heaven. You are my king. Will you be a friend of God? Will you live in such a way to say God is my praise? Father, we need your help. We need your grace. We thank you that you are true to your word, that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And we ask that you would grow us and change us into his likeness, that we might stand among those saints of old and even this present age who love you supremely, serve you faithfully, read your word diligently, and who testify powerfully. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.